You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Thank you again for being here this morning. I want to say a couple of words to our little theologians before I begin, uh, before we pray and look at this text. Um, little theologians is the name that I give for uh, the children that are with us uh, in our worship service. We love having our children uh, with us. So little theologians, I want you to listen for something in this passage and in this sermon. Because Jesus is going to tell his disciples to let these words sink into their ears. And I want you to draw that. I don't, you don't have to draw two ears, but you have to draw at least one. Because Jesus says, let these words sink into your ear. I'm going to mention that passage uh, in the sermon, but what's sinking in their ears is the better way to, to give Him majesty. What is it about God that we are to praise? Well, this passage tells us, and He says to the disciples, let it sink into your ear. And so I want you to draw uh, an ear. Uh, welcome to all of you uh, this morning. Uh, I want to invite you if, you, if you're able to stay after our worship service, uh, we're going to have a fellowship meal. We do this uh, once a month as a congregation. You're all invited to uh, to join us for that. Let's, uh, let's pray first, and then we'll read this uh, passage out of Luke chapter 9. But first, let's pray. Our Father, thank You for speaking to us in Your Word. Thank You for teaching us how to uh, to praise You. Uh, help. Uh, thank You for teaching us what it looks like to uh, give You majesty. Thank You for defining Your majesty for us in this passage. In Jesus' name, Amen. So our passage this morning is in Luke chapter 9. We're going to begin at verse 37. So Luke 9, 37. Uh, I like to always go back to the Scripture to remind you of things. So it's good to have a Bible in front of you. If you don't have one, uh, James can get one to you. Uh, Luke chapter 9 is what we're looking at. If you just wave your hands, James will get, get a Bible to you. We're making our way through this Gospel. We are at Luke chapter 9, verse 37. Listen to God's Word. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met Him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at, every, at everything He was doing, Jesus said to His disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask Him about this saying. This is the word of our Lord. 
I believe in this passage, Jesus Himself tells us where to find our key theme. Right, right there at the end, when the crowd was astonished and marveling in verse 43. And then Jesus tells His disciples in verse 44 that there was no way to avoid the fact that He must die. And this is the second time He said this. The first time was just before He ascended the mountain. The disciples' response in verse 45 sounds like a rather tough commentary on them. They didn't understand it. It was concealed from them. They did not perceive it. They were afraid to ask. This verse here, verse 45, it's just notoriously difficult to understand. The word translated perceive doesn't show up anywhere else in the New Testament. And the thought that God would actively conceal the mission of Jesus from the disciples is rather tough to swallow. I don't think that's what's happening here. The best way perhaps to understand this reality is to compare this situation in verse 45 with that of the Egyptian Pharaoh whose heart was hard against the Hebrew people because God had hardened his heart. But the Pharaoh's heart was hard against the Hebrew people also because he hardened his own heart against God. And so, mysteriously, it was just a part of God's plan that the disciples would be ignorant right at this moment. But it's also the disciples' fault that they were so ignorant, which is why Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. Let me ask you to ponder just verse 45 like this. A contemporary theologian whom I like to read is strongly in favor of reading poetry as an act of theologizing. He says this is good for the theologian to read poetry. He says that when the poet stares at that which the rest of us merely glance at, the poet's inviting us to take a longer look with him. And it's precisely this longer look that is necessary to cultivate a sensibility for the significant. That's what this author says. You, you stare at the work of a poet, and the poet has written it in such a way that if you stare, you're able to cultivate this sensibility to the significant. That's why he says that reading poetry is good preparation for studying God's Word what we need to understand is that the disciples are not in any mood at all to look longingly or to look hard at the mission of Jesus. And because of this, they're not actually cultivating the significant, uh, or the sensibility of the significant. I mean, the disciples, it seems, aren't really interested in stopping to consider that this man must die. Who has ever said anything like this to them before? But Jesus knows their resistance. He knows their resistance to take in the awfulness of God's plan, which is why He tells them, let these words sink into your ears. It's very difficult to hear that this man that you have been with is saying to you that he must die. The truth is that we very rarely take a longer look at Scripture to cultivate sensibility for the significant. You know, we don't often pause in the speed of life to actually let the words of our Jesus sink into our ears as we sit and study Scripture, meditate upon Scripture, pray that God's Spirit would teach us through Scripture. But what we certainly need to see in this passage before we go any further is that Jesus wants His disciples to know and He wants us to know that the Son must die. 
Jesus must die that he might be raised. One of the ways the Holy Spirit teaches us to take a long look is that there's so much that's hidden in this passage, but hidden right in plain sight. Luke highlights things for us to see, but we still need to slow down in order to notice them. Keep in mind the scene on the mountain from the night before. We looked at this scene last Sunday. Jesus ascended a mountain with three of His disciples, four people in total, which turned into six people when Moses and Elijah appeared. But now, they're descending that mountain into a great crowd of many people. And on the mountain, there was relative tranquility, even sleepiness, but the crowd that they're about to join is noisy and bustling. On the mountain is a unique closeness with God as His presence surrounded them in the cloud. But there's no closeness to God as His presence uh, as uh, on the plains below. There's no cloud on the plains below. And God's presence seems far as an evil spirit works harm in a man's son. On the mountain, there seemed to be time to reflect. They may have even been there overnight, but the awaiting crowd below seems to come lunging at them with interrupting zeal. And on the mountain, God the Father commands them, this is my Son, my chosen one, listen to Him. But below the mountain, an unnamed father pleads, this is my Son, my only Son, please save Him. What an astounding contrast it is between the mountaintop and this crowd. Part of the doctrine of our church is that we believe that God is sovereign not over just the way in which Scripture is majestic in its literary style, and Scripture is majestic in its literary style, but God is sovereign over the historical elements themselves, the, the small details behind these literary elements, the timing of Jesus' descent into, into the crowd. The timing of this demon harming this man's only son. All of these events have been sovereignly ordered by God in such a way that Jesus Himself would be glorified. How great a God to do that. And here the world of the mountaintop and the world of the plains below seem to be truly two different worlds. The world of close presence with the Father and the world of noise and desperation and confusion just a short walk below. But Jesus makes that walk. He comes down out of the mountain. Verse 37 is very explicit that Jesus comes down out from that mountain and He enters into this world that He might preach the good news of the Gospel. And He comes into this crowd, into this confusion, this mayhem, into this noise, so that Jesus can preach the Gospel that will present to them the rich communion that He has already had with the Heavenly Father, that that rich communion would be shared with those amidst this noisy crowd. Keep in mind that nine days ago, Jesus told His disciples that He would be rejected, that He would be killed. And yet, and yet, He lovingly, and selflessly descends into the center of this crowd. A crowd filled with some who would gladly reject Him and perhaps even gladly kill Him. He descends into that crowd. But We also need to keep this in mind because John and Peter and James, well, they're descending with Jesus. 
Jesus has told his disciples that a follower of Jesus is one who denies himself, who takes up his cross daily, that whoever would lose his life for his sake will actually be saving it. And John and Peter and James, they're doing that right now as Jesus leads them deep into the middle of that rejection. It was Peter who wanted to build tents on that mountain and stay there. And Jesus leads them into the crowd of rejection. Scripture tells us that James and Peter will themselves one day be arrested for the sake of Jesus. And Scripture tells us that James will be the first martyr of the Christian church. And then in historical accounts of church history, we learn that Peter also will be martyred. Jesus takes them into that crowd. But it's not the crowd in general that Jesus descends into with His disciples. He's met by a particular problem. Do you think that this crowd uh, witnessed from the foot of the mountain the cloud of God's presence descending on the mountaintop? Do you think they looked up and they were able to see that cloud of His presence? And if they did, do you wonder if they thought that it was unusual at all? Unfortunately, Luke doesn't tell us. Maybe they just didn't notice, or maybe it was dark. But be that as it may, I can't escape the picture of Moses coming down from Sinai with the law in his hands in Exodus 32, only to find that the crowd there had given up waiting on him. Filled with a desire to worship something, anything, the crowd that awaited Moses coerced his assistant Aaron to make an idol. And God says to Moses on the mountain, I have seen these people, and behold, they're a stiff-necked people. Now, this crowd, the crowd into which Jesus descends, this crowd is awaiting His return, and they aren't making an idol. And I don't think that the nine disciples present represent Aaron, but these people are indeed a stiff-necked people. Let's not forget that this crowd represents people who are confused about the identity of Jesus. They're confused about the purpose of Jesus. Nine days ago, Jesus asked the disciples who the crowd says that He is. And we're told that the crowd can't decide if Jesus is John the Baptist or Elijah or if He's some other prophet. But while they don't know who He is and while they don't know what He is about, they're most certain that He is not the chosen one of God who is sent to rescue them from their sin. That's why they're a stiff-necked people. They don't know who He is but they know He isn't their Redeemer. They know He isn't their Redeemer. And when Jesus calls them a faithless and twisted generation in verse 41, He is actually quoting Moses, who also calls the people senseless and foolish and perverse, fat and wealthy people who kick against God and who happily forget that He gave them birth. We just read that passage from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. And Paul himself echoes this same sentiment when he calls the crowd of the world a crooked and twisted people. But there is one person in this crowd, a member of the crowd who actually stands out because he is the one who actually approaches Jesus. A man whose only child is being tormented by an evil spirit. In Mark's Gospel, we know that this child has been tormented since childhood. The evil spirit seems to be exacting 
every control at his disposal in order to control this poor child. And not only control him, it seems to actually uh, kill him, end his life. The evil spirit convulses him, makes him foam at the mouth, makes him scream, causes him to grind, or as Luke says, to shatter, possibly a reference to his shattering teeth. And the other, other Gospels add that this child is made mute and his body stiffens up, becomes rigid. But the singular action that ought to stand out is that the evil spirit wants to seemingly slowly kill this child, bringing him near water and fire, we're told in the other Gospels. This child is everything to this man, the dad. He's everything. And not just emotionally. This child is everything to the man economically as well. He's he's, um, everything to the man in terms of this man's hopes for the future. This child is to be his only means of future financial security. And we're not told the man is a widow. So it seems a, a wife is involved as well. But the stark reality is this. Here is a man who is utterly powerless to do anything at all. For his son. He's utterly powerless. He always has been and he always will be completely without power. And although the disciples have healed before, not even the disciples are able to help this man. Where can he look for any help? We might say that of all the people in this crowd, this one man tastes human powerlessness more profound and more publicly than anyone else. The crowd sees Jesus descend, but the crowd also sees a man wallowing in his powerlessness right there before their eyes. Wallowing in his powerlessness. No one can help. Your kid. Well, I think that with very little stretching, we can discern two things that Jesus truly wants us to get in this scene. And I understand that these two may not seem to perfectly fit within verse 44, which I still believe 44 is the thematic statement for the whole passage. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But it seems that there are two things that Jesus wants us to be impressed by, to not miss. And I want to tell you what those two things are. The first is this, that no one's life is made peaceful by his or her own strength. No one's life is made peaceful by his or her own strength. No one is able to be the producer, the maker of their own peace. In a poem by a poet by the name of Stephen Dobbins, published in the mid-90s, Dobbins grapples with the fact that life is just tremendously unfilling. I don't know if this man's a believer. I'm pretty sure that he isn't. But this poem talks about how life is just remarkably unfulfilling. Uh, He says in the poem, how is it possible to want so many things and still want nothing at all? 
He gives us a picture of a man who uh, can't sleep at night. He wants to sleep, but he also wants to bang his head against the wall and he pleads, why is all of this so difficult? And I imagine that this man that Stephen Dobbins is writing about in his poem is a lot like uh, people today who simply can't make sense of the world around them. Life doesn't seem to match up with expectations. Uh, They can't quite make sense of it. They never sleep very well. I think of the poor man in our passage whose boy has been tormented by an evil angel since childhood. In Mark's Gospel, that man... He says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. That's Mark 9.24. That's the kind of man who is powerless uh, uh, to help his son. And I think that might be the kind of life that Stephen Dobbins is describing uh, in his poem. I am sure that this man who has no power to heal his son, I am sure that that man is not sleeping well at night. If he closes his eye, when's when's the evil angel going to take his son into the fire the last time? Or into the water the last time? And the poet Stephen Dobbins is trying to come to grips with this. How is it possible to want so many things and still want nothing? Why is all of life so difficult? And this man in Stephen Dobbins' poem tosses and turns. He cannot sleep. And the next line in that poem about this sleepless night goes like this. A man tossing and turning in bed and he can't sleep. Stephen Dobbins says this. He says, but the dog says, let's go make a sandwich. Just think about that. But the dog says, let's go make a sandwich. Let's make the tallest sandwich anyone's ever seen. And that's what they do. And that's where the man's wife finds him, staring into the refrigerator as if into the place where the answers are kept. The ones telling why you get up in the morning and how it is possible to sleep at night. It's a funny poem, but it's a serious matter. And I want all of us to hear that our problems will never be solved by staring into a refrigerator. Our problems will never be solved by staring into a refrigerator. And that might sound, that might sound obvious. But our problems are not going to be solved by staring into a deeper bank account. And our problems aren't going to be solved by staring down a prosperous career. And our problems aren't going to be solved by staring into the eyes of a loved one. And our problems aren't going to be solved by staring into a satisfied identity. Life is difficult. Humanity is unredeemed. God didn't create a world to hold people who can't sleep at night. God created everything good. A good world inhabited with worshipers of His who would multiply God's glory in the world but they rebelled against God and they multiplied into a crowd of people waiting at the bottom of a mountain to test God, to find Him lacking, and to kill Him. These kind of people will always prefer to stare into a refrigerator for life's answers rather than stare into the loving eyes of Jesus, the One who stands before them now. You see, the Bible tells us that no one can fill their lives with peace but Jesus. No one can fill their lives with peace on their own. The father of the boy tormented by an evil spirit since childhood has been able to keep him alive up to this point. The evil spirit tries to throw the child into the water or into the fire, but the dad has kept him alive. That's not peace. 
Jesus offers a lasting peace. An eternal peace. A peace that can endure the loss of a job, the loss of money, the loss of loved ones, even the loss of personal life. That's the peace that Jesus offers. And we'll never get that staring into a refrigerator. So no one can fill their life with peace by their own strength. But there's also this, the second thing that Jesus wants us to walk away with, that God has Himself willingly given up His Son for our peace. God has Himself willingly given up His Son for our peace. As already seen, Jesus Himself walked down the side of the mountain into the crowd of people, many of whom He knew would reject and perhaps kill Him. But Jesus understands something more about His descent into the rejecting world. When we look at verse 44, we see that Jesus understood His own descent into that crowd, not as His doing, but as God's command for Him. Please, I'm begging you now. Please, right now, look at verse 44. Verse 44 does not say the Son of Man is about to deliver Himself into the hands of men. It does not say that. Verse 44 says this, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. In verse 43, the crowd is astonished at the majesty of God, and it would seem that the disciples are just as astonished. But at the end of verse 43, Jesus speaks privately to His disciples. They had already been told about His death, both before the mountain and on its peak. And in verse 44, it would seem that Jesus says to them, these people are praising the majesty of God because He saved the Father's only child. But now you know how truly to praise God's majesty. God has refused to save His own Son and has instead delivered Him into the hands of men who would kill Him. You see, the man with the child tormented by an evil spirit, his son was saved. At the moment that Jesus says the words of verse 44, literally at that very moment, Verse 43, look at it. While they were all marveling. At the moment that Jesus says the words of verse 44, that man is holding his child in his arms, praising Jesus for what has happened. That man has his only son in his arms. And he's crying. He has to be crying. And he's resting from his work. And he's contemplating an entirely new future. His Son, His only Son, has been saved. But brothers and sisters, God will not save His only Son. God will not save His Son. He will let Him die. He's leading Him to His death. He will forsake Him. He will let Satan celebrate over Him. God won't save His Son. Why? Why won't He save His Son? He's delivering His Son off the mountain, out of His presence, into the crowd, among people who will kill Him. Why is He delivering His Son? Because someone must pay for the sins of the crowd. And He did this for your peace.
right now, He did this for your peace. How many times have we stared at the Chugash Mountains or Denali or Prince William Sound or Kachemak Bay and have just found there the majesty of God? How many times has that happened to us? But Christian, don't you for a second consider the majesty of God apart from the majesty of sending His only begotten Son into the hands of wicked rebels that He might die the most unjust death in the history of the world for your peace. That's a majestic God. No one's life is made peaceful by his or her own strength. God has delivered up His only Son for our peace. Let that sink deeply into your ears. Is it sinking? The Son must die. Let's pray. Father, there's no way in a million years anyone in this room would author Your majesty in that way. No one would do that. I wouldn't do that. But this is Your majesty, that You would reclaim sinners by forsaking the only sinless one. That in His resurrection, placed upon us would be His perfect righteousness that we might be able to stand before You. Jesus, thank You for taking on Yourself our putrid sin. In Your name and for Your glory, we are here this morning. Amen.